This is an ABC podcast. Kaya Wilson has a job with an incredibly cool title. Kaya is a tsunami scientist. He observes what happens when something shifts on the ocean's floor and it displaces vast amounts of seawater that then rolls across the ocean and crashes into islands and continents. Kaya grew up in England, Jamaica, Tanzania and Indonesia before coming to Australia to do a uni degree. And one day while surfing, he met with a terrible accident, an accident that left him broken and in danger of being paralysed. But those weeks and months of slow and painful recovery accelerated a decision that had been brewing for such a long time. And what Kai didn't expect was that all of that would in turn open up a bunch of family secrets. Kaya Wilson's memoir is called As Beautiful As Any Other. Hello, Kaya. Welcome. Thank you. You were five when you moved with your mum and dad to Jamaica. Why Jamaica? How had your parents chosen to come and live there? I hate to do this to you, but it was Aruba. Another, Aruba? Aruba. As in Aruba, Jamaica. Right. Aruba. <laughs> right, by the Beach Boys. That Aruba. Right. That Aruba. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tiny Caribbean island. You can see... Venezuela from the beach. My parents were teachers and they wanted an, an adventure and they'd heard about international schools. So they went to a conference to get jobs in an international school and all the desks were lined up in alphabetical order. And Aruba obviously was like early on. Right, at the A desk? At the A desk, yeah. And they accepted them on the spot and they didn't even know where it was, but it was a magical place. Do you have um, memories of it? Oh, vivid very clear memories. For me, it's very associated with a, a kind of childhood freedom that I, I'm not sort of nostalgic about, but I like to hold on to. Is it close yeah. to the cliche, like the palm trees, the sands, the crystal blue ocean, people drinking rum? Yeah, it is that. And it's also desert. You know, it was, it was a very much a desert island. The desert was called the Kanuku and it's um, got this sort of coral rock ground so you're walking on sort of spiky coral and there's you know cactus everywhere and this sort of low slung kind of shrubbery there's a the national tree is is the divi divi tree and it's very iconic you know it's on all the sort of t-shirts and it's this very kind of gnarly sort of tree that always blows in one direction because of the the trade winds are very powerful so you've got childhood memories like a queenslander does or a coastal queenslander someone living near the beach sunshine warmth salt air all that sort of thing very much that barefoot freedom, lots of roaming around, plunging into the ocean, that sort of that sort of seamless transition between land and ocean that you have in the tropics. That is very much a part of me and that was that was my experience. And what was the school like that you went to? Was that the school your parents were teaching at? Yeah, it was the school my parents were teaching at, which was again a very tight knit community, you know, and it was lovely. It was a very small school. If you just sort of imagine a a whitewashed building with palm trees out the front. I remember these three sort of sister palms at the entrance that were in the, the school logo. And when I went back 20 years later, they were still there. So know. being an outsider doesn't matter so much because everyone's an outsider in such a school? Absolutely. It's a, it's a culture of transience and there's a, there's a looseness there. You know, you start at the school and you're not the only new person. That was, I was never the only new person. At 15... You went to the scariest place of all, which is back to England, to a very, very posh private school that sounds like it was like Hogwarts without the magic to me. Uh, the school you went to, it was called Haleybury, is that right? Or do you pronounce it Hibidu or something like that? <laughs> what was the school like? Uh, it's pronounced Haleybury. It was a bit like Hogwarts without the magic. The English boarding school was a, was a harsh place. Everything is structured in terms of class. Everything is structured in terms of superiority. I was immediately setted in every single class, meaning... What do you mean, setted? Set, so you're placed according to your academic achievements and abilities, you're placed in a set. So top set all the way. I think there are five sets in most of my classes in every single subject. So we right. received a report card every six weeks with your ranking uh, for your whole year. And I remember seeing it the first time. I was like, what is this number? And it was my, my ranking. Is that such a bad thing? Does it give you a bit of drive and competitiveness? I was old enough to have a, a sense of values that saw it as nonsense, right? So I was already driven. And, and I also was driven in a way that was 
quite intrinsic. I don't think it's good for society to to teach people that that they are better than other people or that they are worse than other people. I come from this sort of mixed ability style classrooms where we learn to work as a team. They're also part of our class and we're also trying to do the same things and work towards common goals. And achievement isn't God. You know, achievement is a thing, but so is cooperation. And I didn't find it motivating. I found it dehumanizing. Which set were you in? I was in the top set. You were in the top set? Yeah, which most people, you know, if you if you benefit from a system... Most people tend to be okay with the system, but I had seen something else. And I remember being concerned about it, but I was very small in a very powerful place. And I found the effort of working to fit within it extremely difficult. But on paper, I was very successful. What happened to those who were in the bottom set? How were they treated? Um, you knew they were in the bottom set. You know, everyone knew that. The school was already selective. You know. What you're suggesting to me is you, you, you don't know because you, you weren't able to talk to them? Were there sanctions against? <laughs> seriously, seriously, was it seen like, oh, don't go to, talking to that oik over there? Well, like that? it's funny you say that because I had a sort of you know, casual teenage relationship with a boy who was very artsy and we had a lot of fun and I really liked him and he was a nice guy and, and we were teenagers and I was told by several teachers, he's not right for you. What about that other guy? And I dated another guy who was in the top set for a short period of time and he was an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) But there was the the nudging was that you will associate with the best, you will be the best and you look down on other people. Did you change the way you spoke? I have a very innate ability to adapt my accent to those around me. So did you sound like Boris Johnson while you were there? <laughs> I don't think I ever got that far. <laughs> but I recognise some things in Boris Johnson. There's things about that culture that I understand from being in that environment. I really do need you to explain, Kaya, how it was you ended up in a pool with Prince William. I really need you to explain how that happened. Um, so I was extremely sporty. I wanted to play water polo for England. I was extremely driven. I was in a boys' boarding school and I was, quote-unquote, a girl, you know. And then we were playing against Eton. So Eton was coming, Prince William was on the team. All the boys on the team were just like, we're going to crack his nuts. You know? Really? That, <laughs> that was said? The, yeah. Just they that... were getting aggressive. They right. wanted to beat him up. They wanted right. to, like, take it out on Prince William. I don't know why. And because I wasn't that sort of person, I was picked to mark Prince William. And everyone came to watch this match because he's a quasi-celebrity, you know. And so I was basically spent an hour and a half spooning Prince William skin on skin and sort of just, like, trying to kind of, like, politely engage with this person whilst the entire school was screaming from the sidelines. And I felt sorry for him because he was so scrutinised. You know, in water polo, you, you wear Speedos, right? And he had to wear his board shorts into the pool and take them off so that no one would photograph him in Speedos. And I felt a real empathy because I was, quote-unquote, the only girl on the team and I had to change in brim cupboards most of the time. So I was like, you know what, we've got things in common at this point. (laughs) I'm not going to beat you up. Let's just play sport. You're a high achiever academically and at sports. There would have been a lot of expectation. You'd go to Oxford or Cambridge or somewhere like that. That's not what happened. What happened there? Did you want that for yourself or did your parents want that? Absolutely. That was the narrative of my um, expected destiny. You know, I was doing very well at school. I was school captain. They called us Oxbridge students, so students who had the potential to go to Oxford or Cambridge. My father had been to Oxford and it had been um, quite a monumental experience for him. He had been a sort of working-class white South African who went to Oxford on a scholarship It had very much changed his life. And I had done what's expected of me, lived in this environment, and I had succeeded to their script. And I didn't want to go to Oxford. (laughs) I did apply. I didn't try very hard. I got there. I was like, oh, I'll go for that college. You know, I walked into this unbelievable thousand-year-old building, and there were deer outside the window. And I was a bit of an alien already, And for them in that world, things are very narrow and I didn't want it. And I didn't let them know that I wanted it. And so they didn't let me in and I was relieved, but everyone else was devastated. (laughs) 
the last six months before you left to come to Australia to do a degree in, at Macquarie University in Sydney instead. Tell me how you spent those last six months in Cornwall. I love Cornwall, just as an aside. It's a beautiful place. I had this scholarship. I knew it was there and I was just trying to earn some money. I got a job at a beach bar, cafe, on a very beautiful Cornish beach, which Cornwall is is a more dramatic land than most people imagine for England. It's got sort of towering cliffs. It's got very sort of windswept countryside. It has sky, not quite as Australia has a sky, but it has a sky. And I lived in a sort of janky old caravan, um, rented it for, I don't know, 15 pounds a week or something. <laughs> so I'd wander down every day down a winding road from the top of the cliff to the bottom of the cliff to this very, very tidal sandy beach and worked in the cafe for a few hours, surfed the rest of the time, made a sort of ragtag bunch of friends um, and enjoyed England for one of the first times. And having that scholarship waiting for me in Australia meant that my parents were okay. <laughs> meant that everyone was sort of like, okay, well, you haven't completely dropped out, but I was able to drop out. So you came to Australia to do marine biology at Macquarie University. You did your degree in that. Then you shifted to hydrography, the science of mapping the ocean floor. That's a really different kind of science. What drew you to that and away from sea animals to the ocean floor? Going to sea for me was seductive. I wanted the big skies, the endless ocean. I wanted the remoteness and I wanted the adventure. Yeah, and what about the weirdness? Like what lies on the ocean floor? Who knows what's down there? And that's just it. There are things that we have never seen before. You know, I, I do, I have actually a hard drive of footage from ROVs, which is like a sort of submarine that we use down there. And I've got this, just like, I've got this one bit of a vampire squid. I think we were monitoring a pipeline. So it's just like endless, endless pipe. And it's dark, right? It's so deep. It's dark like 2,000 metres, that kind of depth. And there was this alien-like creature that just like pulsed and then just moved. And it had this cartoon sort of face that came from nowhere. That felt like being 20,000 leagues under the sea. Two kilometres below the surface of the, of the ocean <laughs> and you're seeing something called a vampire. I've never heard of a vampire squid and what it looks like a ghost or something, does Look, it? Google yeah. it. It's amazing. And, and that was gasping moment. And I had those moments going. I had those moments and that's what kept me going. And, you know, there was, those there was also, you know, moments of being on a ship. The, the seas are wild. I think we were going between Eden and Melbourne and the seas were huge, you know, like sort of 17 metre waves or something. And it's, it's quite a violent experience. You know, the boat moves and the boat shakes. And I just remember going up and down, up and down. The river, and I was like, I just have to accept what happens to this boat. And then looking out the window and we were in the middle of a super pod of dolphins. So just like dolphins as far as the eye can see. It was just magical, you know, and it gave me a sense of beauty, a sense of connection. And it also gave a sense of beauty to the tough, tough men I was working with. So to see those men who were so hard light up in this experience of being surrounded by dolphins was in itself a beautiful thing. You were out there at sea on these ships for the oil and gas industries and all of that. How'd you get on with that kind of a crew, Kaya? It, it was tough. It was a hard, hard culture. I was almost always the only woman. I was different already the moment I stepped on board. I had a fairly central job in that I was in charge of all the positioning of instruments that were above the water and beneath the water. I was in a chair surrounded by screens. I was a bit of a captive audience. At first, men were wary. They were wary of me. And then I became a bit of a confessional. And I was a soft space. And, and there's a lot of loneliness with men that work at sea. And I very much saw that side of it. But then on the other hand, it was quite a toxic environment, you know. And I remember one guy, you know, I did quite a lot of work in the Philippines and one guy said to me, you know, we had a meeting before you joined us and we decided that we're not going to change our behaviour. 
And it was a fairly ominous statement and I wasn't quite sure what that meant really until we went to shore and it was straight to the bars. Sex tourist bars, that kind of thing. Sex tourist bars, sex workers mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, there would be they called like a mama Sue who would arrange for women to be brought to them. A lot of quite visible underage sex workers. And it was very confronting. It, it was very confronting and they very much challenged me to challenge what they were doing and dare me to say something. Do you think they wanted you to say something? You don't want me to say something, but you kind of do at the same time? There was something there. You know, I'd be with them when they were on the phone to their wives on the ship. I would be with them when their kids were sick and they called up. I would be with them on that side of their lives, but then I was also with them in this sort of underbelly part of their lives. There was something about it that they saw as finally I get to do this. Finally, I get to do this without judgment. And I think I represented something for them. I don't completely understand the psychology of it, but it was completely normalized. You know, on the, on the pay, when you fill out your HR forms, there was, you know, there's a place where you can put in multiple bank accounts. So you could quite easily have pay going into different bank accounts and your wife wouldn't know. So it was set up for that world. And a lot of people with secret children and families. And I, I never really understood it, but I got to know them and their vulnerabilities. So I didn't come at it with the harsh judgment. I did want to understand their lives. And what was it that appealed to them to have this set up, you know? Like, and I don't know what exactly it was, but it, it didn't feel like they had a lot of agency or control in those sorts of decisions. Where did they put their honour? What was honour to them? Was it just standing up for your mate rather than doing the right thing by your family? What was honour to them, do you think? They worked hard. They really worked hard. And they were proud of that? They were proud of that. Yeah. They were very able in a technical sense. You know, they could take a submarine underwater, fix it overnight. You know, if something went wrong, they could fix it anywhere with anything. They were bonded to each other. But again, there was a true well of loneliness. And these are not men who necessarily had a lot of opportunity, right? They were earning a lot of money. But, you know, they would talk about, I can't go to bars in Australia anymore because the women don't come to me. They were not desirable men in Australia. But in the Philippines, all that money, that white privilege, they were extremely powerful. The privilege that I had in that world is I saw behind the other side. I went to the women's toilets in these bars and I talked to the sex workers and I met them and I heard them talk about their children and they showed me pictures of their kids. They told me how they had to pay for the dresses that were part of the uniform. They told me how their uneasy relationship with contraception, you know, so I had both sides and that was the extraordinary part for me. Was it harder to keep quiet then and not say the thing that they didn't or did want you to say to them? I grew a type of rage, I think, in that environment because they they did not want to see these women as people. They, they would actively avoid seeing these women as people. Yeah. So you became a tsunami scientist. Yes. Which is a very cool job title, Kaya. That's, that's great. Is this what I imagine it is? Is this essentially you study what happens when the tectonic plates shift underwater, vast amounts of water are displaced, they go surging across the ocean and eventually hit land somewhere. If I got this right, is that what you do? That's exactly, exactly right. It can be a little bit more hypothetical because tsunamis don't happen very often. We use real tsunamis that have happened to validate our models, which hypothetically plan what could happen so that we are prepared in the event of a dangerous tsunami. I think when the 2004 Christmas tsunami hit, the shift that occurred in everyone's mind is I think a lot of people, maybe I thought this, they thought a tsunami was a towering wave, a big, tall skyscraper wave, when in fact it's all its energy is lateral, isn't it? It's like it's like a gigantic... I don't know, drawer shutting, being slammed shut or something, and, and all this water moves in a lateral direction. <laughs> That's a great 
actually, I haven't heard that draw analogy. I think mm. that's a, a good one. You know, in, in Japan, it was often described as as if the entire ocean was moving towards them. So, would you, does that mean you create simulations of tsunamis? Yeah. You create a digital world to the amount of realism that is possible. Right. You replicate some kind of coastal space. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So you know all that ocean mapping that I was doing? Yeah. So all that texture of the ocean floor really influences where the tsunami will travel and how big it will get in different locations. We have the ocean and then we introduce realistic waves. So when a tsunami rolls in Mm -hmm. and it's just about to hit the coast, Mm -hmm. does the nature of the way the the, the floor of the ocean rises up suddenly to the beach... Mm -hmm. Does the steepness of that really, or the shape of that really affect how the tsunami will then hit the land? Absolutely. So we call it shoaling. The wave will grow and it will get bigger mm-hmm. and that's when it becomes destructive. A tsunami at, out at sea is, is quite benign. But once it shoals, once it gets bigger, as it encounters the shallow water, that's when it grows. And when it goes onto land where you don't normally get waves or into harbours and estuaries where you don't normally get waves, that's where it's incredibly destructive. So if you're in one of those gigantic boats you've been on, those research mm. vessels, uh, and you're at sea and there's a tsunami going what underneath you, do, do you notice it? Do, do, do you, or do you get shoved along like a couple of k's along the ocean you, or what? You, you wouldn't notice it. It would just be another wave. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. The advice to ships is to go out to sea. So if you're in harbour and there's a tsunami warning, the advice is to go out to sea because it will be a blip. <laughs> so that's counterintuitive. <laughs> <laughs> right? But that's it. Tsunamis aren't just one wave. Tsunamis are a series of waves and that is also the danger. So, so Australia is geologically stable. We mm-hmm. are sort of well back from what the ring of fire as it's known, that kind of ring of tectonic instability that's around the rim of the Pacific Ocean. We're pretty safe from a tsunami here, aren't we? What do you know about that? That's what we like to think. Oh, really? <laughs> Look, if we talk about relative risk, yeah. we're not Indonesia. Right. We're not um, Chile. Right. We're not Japan. Right. We're not Japan. No. But we are exposed to multiple subduction zones. You know, the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004 devastated uh, Indonesia, devastated a lot of places, but there were quite significant waves down the west coast of Western Australia in very remote areas. There was a, a campsite that got with the Land Rover that got moved um, 100 metres down the beach. There just weren't very many people there. On the East Coast, we're exposed to a subduction zone just beneath New Zealand. There's the New Hebrides Trench. There was a tsunami with the Tongan volcano in January. The thing is, is that the frequency of large events is in the kind of thousands of years oh. mark. They don't happen very often. They could happen at any time. And, you know, the chances of it happening on the East Coast to a degree that it comes onto land and causes massive destruction are pretty small, but the chances of it coming into ports and harbours and causing disruption are quite high. So the risk is relatively low, but it is still present. 2016, you had what my producer Nicola calls your own personal tsunami maelstrom (laughs) while you were out surfing. What happened on that day, Kaya? I was a huge surfer, loved surfing. It became an important part of my life. I had a van full of surfboards and I was doing my PhD, my tsunami modelling PhD. We were doing some field work for another colleague um, where we were measuring the waves up on the north coast near Foster And I went for a surf, as I would have on any other day. And I went out into the ocean. I was like, had a slight sense of nervousness, had a slight frisson. There there was a sense of unease, but the waves were beautiful. It was very clean and had this nice, quite nice new surfboard I was excited about. And I just caught a couple of waves, um, felt really good, rode this a very high line. And then I just caught another wave rode the wave, enjoyed it, and just casually in a way that I've done thousands of times before, dove off the wave and I went headfirst into a sandbank. I knew something was very wrong. My memories are complicated from that time, which is the nature of traumatic memory, but essentially I fractured and dislocated my neck. And I walked out of there holding my head, but I was able to walk. And I walked out of there holding my head and I asked for help. And 
they called an ambulance and I was rushed to hospital. I was quite actually quite remote. It took a very long time for the hospital to come. Were you in pain? I was in excruciating pain. My colleague described my neck muscles as rippling when she saw me come out of the water. And I remember seeing someone and saying, can you take my surfboard? Take my surfboard. Because they were looking at me and they were so shocked. They were not moving. And I was like, what? Just do something. And now I know what I would have looked like. And I think that sort of rippling neck holding my head up um, would have been quite a shocking sight for them. Um, At the time, you know, I was very much full of adrenaline um, and I knew something was very wrong. Nerve pain is a very particular type of pain and it is extraordinary. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So you were telling me before what happened when you got out of the water. You were holding your own head upright knowing something catastrophic had happened. What did the paramedics do when they arrived at the beach? So the, the ambulance did arrive and they ran their finger down my neck and on C5 I sort of gasped with pain. And they gave me Nurofen <laughs> um, at the time. <laughs> and I, I got into the ambulance and there's something very regressive about extreme pain. And it made me this, like, very raging, ardent feminist. And I was so angry at them. What? (laughs) I know. But I was just so angry because they really minimised my pain. And they said, you'll probably be in a brace for a couple of weeks and you'll be just fine. And I wasn't. And I just didn't feel believed. And I think, you know, all of those moments of our lives where we feel a sense of injustice, a sense of not being believed, accumulate. And it came out in a sort of rageful character, but it was deeper than that. They just represented something for me. And when we got to the hospital, they were very casual. And the moment I got the x-ray, I could see out of the corner of my eye, the radiologist calling people over to look at the x-ray. And I heard him swear And he came over and everything changed. It was the most severe break they'd ever seen. There are almost no recorded instances of people having such a severe dislocation and fracture and not being paralysed. So from that moment, the anticipated outcome was that my spinal cord would sever and I would be paralysed from the neck down. So... They were trying to get a helicopter. There was no helicopter. They were trying to work out what to do. And I had to call my parents and say, I've broken my neck. And my mum got on a plane. Uh, my father was sick at the time. My mum got on a plane. So we were in Tari Hospital. I was taken to, to Newcastle and it was hours. There was a very exhausted ambulance driver who tried to pack my head with sandbags and it didn't work. They kept falling down and he just held my head for two hours. And he was so tired. I remember because he'd done a second shift, but he just held my head. It just was one of those special people that stood out in my experience. When we got to Newcastle, I arrive, the, the surgeon comes in with his entourage and says, you should be dead. So th- this is what, <laughs> what I was told. And he was very arrogant, but when I coughed, he looked scared. He, he said, don't cough, don't move. Whatever you do, don't move. Then I had about 24 hours until I was operated on. I was bumped up. I was absolutely the priority. 
but the expectation and what I was told is that I would be paralyzed. The, the trauma nurse who I really liked, she said, we'll take care of you. She said, you've got a spot in the rehabilitation unit and I will teach you as best as I can. And I said, teach me what? And she said, hopefully learning to walk again. So this was the expectation. But I had a long night alone, you know, I had a, had a night alone in the hospital and I couldn't move. If I moved, I might lose my life as I knew it. There were those extreme moments, but then there was also extreme kindness. I was being lined up for surgery. The nurse, she was just there. I don't know where she came from. And she just stroked my head and I was being shuffled around the hospital getting scans, x-rays over and over again. And every movement, every jolt felt incredibly painful, incredibly dangerous. And she, I don't know how she did, but she just, she just stayed with me and she just held my head as they took me through the elevator, took me through the hospital. And her name was Kathy. And there was also this moment where they had lots of students around me and they were moving me to help me pee or something. And they didn't know how to move someone with a spinal injury and they were being taught above my body. And I, I was just crying. And I, I said, I don't think you can do this. And Kathy just said, everyone just leave. And she was so kind and I felt so safe with her. It really, like now I think back on it, she really was the carriage of safety in that moment. And she talked to me about her life. She had worked in a pub. She had worked in various different ways and she became a nurse because she said she cared about people. And she had a retirement plan, which was to run a brothel for people with disabilities. And, you know, I was young and this was very pertinent to, to my interest at the time. And I was like, Kathy, you know what care is, you know? Like, and I just loved her. She was just so great. She just made me feel so good. And then, but, and, and then I just remember being delivered from Kathy into the surgery room. And then suddenly I was alone on a stainless steel bed. And everyone's saying my name. You have to identify yourself over and over again. And you say your full name so that they are operating on the right person. It's a system. And I was questioning my gender and I slowly started to socially use the name Kaya. And the more I said my birth name, the less correct it felt. And I'd been considering transition. I had been flirting with the idea of medical transition and lying on that cold metal table, a, a, a young sort of surgeon assistant came up to me and he said, don't worry. <clears throat> he said, don't worry. We'll do everything we can. We will do our very best. And all I could feel in that moment of vulnerability was if I had a body you did not understand, would you still do your best? And I knew that entering the world of the transgender person, entering the world of the visibly transgender person, the identifiable transgender person, I was entering a new world and a world that isn't respected. And it was scary. But I had also had this near-death experience where I nearly died. And they kept telling me that I didn't want to die that way. I didn't want my time to be over. Looking back, if I think about that moment in the water, what I believe is I had a choice. I believe that there was, there was an opt-out. There was a path that was blank that was easy. Opt-out to death, you mean? Yeah. It's what I believe in my experience of that moment is that I could have chosen to slip away. It would be painless and it would be over but I feel like I chose, I chose life and I wasn't going to do it with compromise. You know, it, so what if the surgeon doesn't trust my body? I'll take it. So what if my family reject me? So what if I lose my job? I'm choosing life and I'm choosing it as I want it to be. 
and all this is surging around your head that can't move, that cannot move before you're going in for surgery? It's a path through fire to clarity. Everything was taken away. Everything was completely reduced. Falsity was burnt away? Absolutely. What is left when everything is taken away? It felt like a moment of enlightenment. And for me, there was so much in my life that questioned who I was. And in that moment, I knew who I was. And we are all a kaleidoscope of what is around us and what is internal. But I had the opportunity to be reduced to the, the, the crystal of that. As you're telling me the story, your, your arms are moving really beautifully. You're using a lot of <laughs> hand gestures and you're moving really nicely too. And you did walk in here. Yeah. Uh, you've obviously had fantastic rehab. Well, it didn't come to that. I was the miracle patient. I was the patient that woke up with no nerve pain and no nerve really? damage. What? No nerve pain? Nothing. Like, I woke up and I knew it was okay. The, the sensation was so radically different. I was okay. It's hard to reconcile the specialness of it in that I am the lone data point. I was not paralyzed. The, the physio got me up, I think, that day. Right. And, and you know, <laughs> we, and walked me through the corridors, through this hospital with all these people that had been looking after me. And I, I really hope this is how it happened because it's how I remember it. And this, this was the Hollywood moment. They all clapped when I walked through the corridors. And it was beautiful. Like, it was magical, you know. And that was, that was the high. I still had torn muscles all through my shoulder right. and neck and I had a brace, but I had a clear path to recovery. Nonetheless, you'd made these really powerful resolutions <laughs> yeah. for this moment. Did you have that moment once you realised you were going to be all right, where you said, well, what are you going to do about all this stuff you resolved when you thought you were in real serious trouble? Yeah, I mean, my recovery was slow and hard, but I saw growth in front of me and I viewed my, I will continue this growth and I will take steps to medically transition. Curveball was my mother flying in and looking after me. I didn't tell her then. Um, I didn't have the capacity to have that conversation with her when I was sleeping 20 hours a day and slowly gathering strength. But that in itself was incredibly difficult. I had friends who would come and visit me and I would spend time with them and they would call me Kaya. And I would go back to this, you know, rented room with my mother who was also trying to connect with me and wasn't getting a lot of connection. And I think it would have been very difficult for her anyway. And she knew something was going on. There was a, there was a known and she heard people call me Kaya and she didn't want to hear it. And I describe the concept of introducing these ideas to people as holding a blade of grass against a wire to see if it's electrified. You get the buzz and you know. And there were moments then where I was holding the blade of grass to the wire and I was getting a shock. So it felt at the time that I wasn't strong enough to take that on. So it would be another... Six months, I think, until I told my mum. And she stayed for three months with me and I probably started taking testosterone six months after my accident. Some time ago I had a guest on who was in the process of transitioning. Mm-hmm. They told me that they'd been taking testosterone and said, wow, <laughs> now I know what you guys have been on all this time. <laughs> Is that what it felt like for you? Oh yeah, it's absolutely it's the it's the it's the spider bite for Spider Man, you know, like it's the radioactive spider that gives you <laughs> special powers as you like swinging from skyscraper to skyscraper. Look, that's what it feels like, you know. I don't want to like it's sort of I don't I'm not going to think too much about what people are going to interpret this as, but like it's a marriage of my self image to my body. It's um, did you get the male libido that goes with it as well? Oh yeah. I was still me, you know, but like I developed this like really base empathy for teenage boys, you know, like 
thank God I had a developed prefrontal cortex by the time I went through male puberty. You know, <laughs> it's nice to you say that. Teenage boys don't get a lot of understanding in this world. For, they have a the rough world. time, yeah. you know, and I'd look at them on the <laughs> bus and I'd be like, oh, mate, you know, like... It's rough. All that and zits as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's no fun. So how did that affect you, that process of transition, taking testosterone and, and everything else, about living in your own skin? It brought an unanticipated, an anticipated level of comfort that I didn't know was possible. It was a sense of connection that was like coming home. It felt completely right. You know, I don't want to get in the intricacies of how it all works and, you know, sort of highs and lows and things, but the moment I felt it, I knew it was right. Did swimming feel different once you started transitioning? Yes. And the ocean and swimming have always been my place to be in my body. I feel held by the ocean. I feel cut out. I feel like I exist in the ocean. And coming into this comfort with my body, I just felt powerful. I felt my body belonged in my skin. I felt I felt at peace. And that is a very calm sense. The sensory experience of entering the water, slightly cold water, I would feel a sharpness going in pre-transition. I feel my body react and then I would ad- adapt and I would be in the water and I would be cut out. I can't, that's silhouette, I'd be silhouetted, you know, this sort of Indonesian shadow puppets. Like I had an outline and I didn't feel like that outside of the water. And then on testosterone and this slow, gradual coming into my skin, it felt like butter. It felt smooth. It felt like my body was already there and I was just moving into a different space. So there's a coming into oneself that was very pleasurable. And I was like, this is what it's supposed to feel like. And I, what I really learned how to do is I learned how to separate the pleasure and the joy of transition from the public perception, from the alarm that it can cause. Perhaps your expressions of joy might have assuaged some of that alarm anyway, if you're looking so happy and you're feeling the rightness of it and it's kind of beaming out of you, maybe that did some good too. The noise, the noise drops away. How about your dad? You mentioned your mum, but how about your dad? How was he taking the news that you were transitioning? So I chose to tell my parents by email for, for reasons. Um, one of the things I wanted them to read the whole email, I didn't want to see their reaction and I wanted them to consider it. And I didn't hear back from them for three days which was an incredibly difficult three days. And what I got back was two separate emails. Very unusual for my parents to have a real sense of unity. And my father wrote to me and he said, I understand this more than you might know. I myself lived as a gay man from 16 to when I married your mother. When I was 16, I read uh, the autobiography of a transgender fighter pilot who transitioned to become a woman, and I considered it for myself. Did you know that? I did not know that. Did you have any inkling of that? No. No, this was absolute surprise. He said that, which was in itself ground-shaking. And then he said his meaning of what he said after that was that he had looked at that life and he considered my decision to be the end of my life. And he said that the only option for me now was to live on the fringes of society. And he was deeply disappointed. He said, our lives are so full of grief. I'm dying. All you've given me is more to grieve. Was he dying? Yes. Dying of? Cancer. That's not the end of the story. You know, I went over there. I had the maturity to say to them, I'm coming. 
I will show you my devotion by showing up and I will care for you until you die. And I did. And I said, I will not hold on to this hurt because there was no time. And I wanted the opportunity to see the man I knew who was gentle and loved me and was very affectionate. And when I look at it back now, had it was absolutely an excellent role model for a gentle masculinity. And we are extremely similar. I'm starting to look more like him with the longer I want to. And, and I was there for that summer and he grew on his perception. I actually sent them a, a reference my boss had written for me at the time, which recommended me with a lot of praise using my chosen name and things like that to reassure them that I was going to be okay. Sound superficial, but were extremely important in their understanding that they weren't losing me in the sense that I was going to be swallowed by society. I would still be okay. What were they envisioning for you? They envisioned homeless survival sex work is what they envisioned (laughs) for me. You know, I mean, addiction, whatever a parent can conjure up in their own worst nightmare is what they envisioned. So once you spent time with your dad and your mum yeah. together, did they take it a bit easier after that? Did they did they get more used to the idea, get less frightened, less angry? Did it get better? They, I think it's important to about my dad in this context because it was his time. Mm. He came to the conversation. It became very important to him to disclose this queer life he'd had, to set the record um, straight. <laughs> to set the record queer, okay, he, he he was a white man in South Africa when there was conscription to fight the war in Angola and he did everything he could to get out of that war. He said he was a conscientious objector at heart and he went to medical school to avoid going to the war and he did various things and that was the narrative. He went to medical school to get out of the army but he was actually exempt Um, on psychiatric grounds on the basis of homosexuality. And he wanted to tell me this story and he wanted to tell me other stories. He told me about his partners who were men that I know, who... Friends of the family. Friends of the family, some of which have had their own families and that he had enduring friendships with men that I cared about. And he wanted to talk, he had a need to talk about this thing this thing that had been silenced and they don't go away. The things we silence sit on a shelf until we take them down. He was so ready to talk about this, but it was really intense. You know, and I took questions to him, you know, I asked him what is it like being gay in apartheid South Africa with a violent father. And we had those conversations. I had this queer lineage that I did not know existed. It was, it wasn't just him. And he spoke to other family members who came, who talked about this thing that no one had spoken of. And that was powerful and it was beautiful. And that was important to him. So him talking about himself accepted me to a degree. And my uncle, who is openly gay, thanked me. He said, you have given your father this. You have cracked this open. I am so happy he is speaking about this. Was he at peace with it all and with you before he died? He didn't have a peaceful death. His fears for me, I think, had dissipated. I think the blocks of a lifetime are not easy to shift. But I think he died knowing that he was truly loved. I've had a lot of people, well, some, quite a few people on this show in the past over the however many years I've been doing this, and I find among the most interesting people to talk to are the ones who have suffered terribly, suffered terribly, like a Vietnam veteran, for example, or something. And in, in your case, the suffering you had from that terrifying accident you had, it does tend to be this fire that burns away falsehood. It kind of makes people... Once they, once they live through the suffering, if, if they've endured it, it tends to make them reintroduce a kind of childish joy in the world. 
at the end of the process. Are you getting that? I think so. I think I mean, suffering is a word that is has different meanings for many people. I like the sort of Buddhist meaning, which is I think where you're going with this, in that life is suffering and it's how we accept it. The thing that made the difference for me was getting to the point where I could no longer hold onto the shell I constructed. You were literally holding your head upright. Exactly. And letting go of the energy that you spend doing that is liberating. Extreme experience can give you that. I don't recommend it, (laughs) but it can give you that. It can give you a chance to let go. I'm trying to be as... um, I'm coming to this conversation with integrity and with honesty. And I ask that of the audience as well in not to label the things I'm trying to express as something that is more easy than what it really is. You know, this is, this is not entry level. This is coming through the other end. And I ask people to just listen with a kind of generosity and an intention to get to the meaning of what I'm saying. I'll just say in conclusion, you make it very easy to listen like that. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Kaya, and thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. It was really lovely. I think, um, I think you got something there. I do too. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to ABC .net.au slash conversations. Kaya Wilson is the author of a memoir called As Beautiful as Any Other. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.